Well, it is the Word of God that uh, He uses to build His church, and that's why the priority of Lakeside Bible Church has always been the teaching and the preaching of God's Word, and we're just trying to pour the Word into the lives of those who come uh, in every possible way, in every means uh, imaginable, um, but primarily through the, the preaching of God's Word on Sunday morning. And uh, we are so blessed and privileged this morning to have uh, someone who I think is, has become a, a statesman in the church in our generation. Uh, his name is Donald Whitney, and uh, he and his wife Kathy have been so gracious to come and uh, spend this weekend with us. Uh, they live in Louisville, uh, Kentucky, uh, and they've been married and serving the Lord together over 40 years. And um, Don is a professor at uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. It's like the Ohio State University. Um, it's the flagship seminary in the Southern Baptist Convention movement. Uh, largest seminary in the history of the world, you said, right? Which is very fascinating to me. But he's been there close to 15 years teaching a uh, professor of biblical spirituality. Uh, he's also the founder and, and director of uh, a ministry, the Center for Biblical Spirituality. He has a website with tons of great resources that I would commend, highly commend to you to check out. Um, but probably what we know Don best for is his books. And um, most of us have probably been impacted by one or more of his very uh, practical uh, books that he's written about the Christian life, spiritual disciplines within the Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life would be one of them. Uh, Ten Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health. Um, how, how do you know, how do I know for sure I'm a Christian? Um, just some very practical issues he's tackled over the years, and uh, primarily when he was a pastor for some 24 years, uh, these were some things that he was teaching his congregation and was able to turn them into books and, and uh, bless the, the wider body of Christ. And so I know those of you that have been able to be with us this uh, this weekend have just really appreciated how uh, practical Don is, is, is teaching, how, how wise he is. He's, uh, you know, kind of sitting like uh, listening to a wise Jedi knight or something. Obi-Wan Kenobi's even got the beard to go with it, right? The, the beard, the perfect beard, right? But it's, you're sitting under a sage, someone who's walked with the Lord for many years, uh, loves Christ, loves his word, loves the church, and so we're truly blessed, we're truly privileged to have him speak to us this morning. And he's going to address, ironically, the last subject that he decided he wanted to address was why listen to preaching in the church? Does that sound familiar? Expository listening, our book. He was one of the men that uh, we asked to endorse uh, this book. And the reason why I asked him to do that is because when I set out to write this book, um, there was really only one other book I was aware of that tackled this subject, and so I was pretty limited on my resources, my research resources, and so I was looking around desperately for anything that had been written even in a blog or a chapter in a book, and one of my favorite uh, resources was this chapter that I came across in Spiritual Disciplines Within the Church, another book he wrote on why listen to preaching in the church, and I just devoured that chapter, and it was really, a, I found it to be a gold mine that in many ways uh, set the course uh, for this book. And so whether you realize it or not, we have already been shaped uh, as a church uh, by Don's ministry uh, through this book, Spiritual Disciplines Within the Church, and it kind of came out in our, that series that we did here about listening, expository listening. And so, uh, Don, it seems very appropriate that this would be uh, the subject that you address uh, for us this morning because you've already uh, impacted us. Uh, with that teaching in the past. So thank you so much for being here. Why don't we give a warm lakeside welcome to Don Whitney. Please take your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. <clears throat> thank you, Pastor, for those kind words, and thank you both to you and to Kelly for the great hospitality you provided for us. Kathy and I are so grateful for the invitation, for the hospitality. Uh, I can't recall when we've been treated better than we've been treated in the last, last three days. Uh, your pastor and wife, his wife has represented you so well. They obviously love you. You are blessed to have them. Don't take them for granted. Uh, and they are widely admired. I, I can tell you, in my travels, I've preached in 46 states, and I've had 
two or three people in different states recently, knowing I was coming here, be sure to say hi uh, because they love uh, Ken and Kelly. And so, uh, again, don't take them for granted. And they have been wonderful representatives of you to us. Thank you for that. It's great to be back. I was here 2005. It's the first time I've been in this building, and I rejoice with you in that. But uh, you are known uh, from a distance throughout America, and um, you are uh, of reputation as a faithful church, loving God, faithful to his word, and so I'm grateful for what God has done in your midst, and what an honor to be back and to be among you. As pastors mentioned, I'm going to preach today on why I listen to preaching in the church. We have been going through this theme of... Uh, why certain things in the church. We began why go to church. We looked at why fellowship in the church and making a distinction between socializing and, and fellowship or koinonia we talked about this morning, why serve in the church, and concluding with why listen to preaching <clears throat> in the church. And it's another one of those that as we were discussing what to do uh, in each of these sessions, Ken kept pushing me toward, you know, why go to church for the Friday night message, and I thought, and I kept coming back, if you know, the core people in your church, the most devoted people are going to be there Friday night, and you want me to talk about why I go to church to them? And uh, it's, it's been all the way through here, really, in many ways, and certainly right now, something you're already committed to, but let's be reminded of the reasons. The Pharisees were the ones who did things outwardly and had forgotten the reasons. We don't want to be that. And since we're never more than one generation away from apostasy, we can never take for granted that everyone in the room is always committed to biblical teaching on any given doctrine. So we're going to come to a familiar passage in 1 Corinthians 1, 20 and 1, and we either need to hear it for the first time or be reminded of it, myself included. And it's a recurring issue as all doctrines are, as I've said, we're never more than a generation away from complete apostasy. And I was reminded of this some time ago when I got a denominational publication <clears throat> mailed to tens of thousands of churches, and it told of a church in a nearby state that believed in, quote, staging drama productions in place of sermons, close quote. And the associate pastor in charge of this said that drama, quote, is the most effective method of presenting the gospel to the people of today because they are so in tune to the visual. Regarding preaching, he said, we've just got to find other ways to get them in. He made this statement at the first ever National Drama Puppetry and Clowning Festival sponsored by this uh, denomination. Some quarters of the church then, preaching is seen as the Pony Express method of communicating the gospel. In its day, it had its place like that horseback postal system. But in a day of satellite communication, wireless technology, uh, there are more effective, more efficient, more attractive methods of communicating than the Pony Express. Well, there's no denying this is a visually oriented age, right? We've got words on the screen up here, and we all spend much of our day looking at the world by means of screens, right? This screen, iPad screen, computer screen. Certainly, this is a visually oriented age. Next to Google, the number one search engine on the internet is YouTube. In light of all that, why not give preaching a decent burial, eliminate it from our services, or at least minimize it, why don't we downplay it and emphasize drama? Why not downplay preaching behind ceremony and ritual, as many churches do? Why not show Christian films instead of preaching? Or, as the largest church in Louisville did this summer, show popular movies and then make comments and observations about certain segments of these recent blockbuster movies. Why not take the time we spend on preaching and devote it to more professional and entertaining music or exciting testimonies or at least a, a pastor-congregation dialogue? Wouldn't any of these be more appealing to people in a visually oriented age than preaching? 
Well, in defiance of the world's wisdom, which says no one wants to come to church and hear sermons, in defiance of the church's marketing strategy, which questions the value of traditional preaching and wants to replace it with something more visually appealing and stimulating, I want to contend from 1 Corinthians 1.21 that preaching is always relevant, always will be, and although I could list many reasons, I want to limit them to those found in 1 Corinthians 1.21 and why you should always attend church where you can consistently hear biblical preaching. The first reason is this, is God's idea. Oh, this is God's idea. God was well pleased to ordain preaching. That's why you should hear it in the church. From the ever-contemporary, God-inspired Bible we read in 1 Corinthians 1.21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. When God determined that the world through its wisdom would not come to know him, he decreed that he would come to be known only through a revelation of himself. He revealed himself generally through creation. It's a glorious revelation of himself, but you won't hear of Jesus out there. That's why people who say, well, I can worship God just as well at the deer, in the deer stand as I can down there at your church. I can worship just God just as well over at the lake as I can at your church. I can worship God just as well in my backyard or on the golf course or somewhere else. And the short answer to that is no, you can't. And if you can, you're probably not a Christian. <laughs> now, if you can't worship there, you're not a Christian. Spurgeon said, every place is a place of worship for the Christian. But the reason that you can't worship consistently as in, out there in the most glorious, breathtaking vista of nature is you'll never hear of Jesus out there. You'll never hear of the cross out there. And if you want to be, if you want to worship God, you'll want to worship him where he's most clearly revealed, right? And he is not most clearly revealed out there, but rather in here. And by in here, I mean in a church where the Bible is preached. So yes, God has generally revealed himself in creation. It's glorious. It's worthy of worship. But he's revealed himself most clearly in a word. First, in the incarnate word. Jesus, when he became flesh, was called the Word of God. John chapter 1 speaks of Jesus as the Word of God who has declared God. The Apostle John describes this incarnational revelation of God this way, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1, 14. To see God is to see the Word of God. You want to see God, look at Jesus. But... It is unlikely Jesus will bodily appear in this room today. So God has revealed himself through a written word known to us as the Bible. Near the end of his life, in the last letter he wrote, the apostle Paul affirmed all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So the words of the Bible are the words of God himself. And as such, they're never outdated. They're never stale. On the contrary, the Word of God is living and active and powerful, Hebrews tells us. So today it's through God's written Word we come to know His incarnate or enfleshed Word. In other words, God is revealed to us through Jesus. Jesus is revealed to us through the Bible. To know God, you must know Jesus, but you won't know Jesus apart from the Bible. He is revealed to us in the Bible. And there's much more I could say about God's self-revelation in Scripture, how it reveals God's attributes and His laws and His will, His plan for the world. But my point this morning is to emphasize this, how God intends for His words to be proclaimed, how God means for His inspired words and His Son to be known to the world. So you could fill the world with Bibles, but that doesn't get the message of the Bible out there. It's not simply that the recorded words of God are in the world, 
God also has a plan for proclaiming them. And that plan is called preaching. It's God's idea. That's what 1 Corinthians 1.21 tells us. God was well pleased to reveal himself in Christ and in the Bible, but he was well pleased that those words be proclaimed in what we call preaching. Now think for a moment. We have an omnipotent God. He can do anything. And this omnipotent God has a message to declare to the world. What are the options available for a God who can do anything to get his message to the world? He has tens of thousands of angels. He could send them out and convey his message by angelic express throughout the whole world, right? Has he ever done that? Oh, yeah. But he wasn't well pleased to choose that method. He could create, he, he created and controlled the stars so he could create a galactic Bible and every night we could look into the sky and, and, and read the gospel. People all over the world in their own tongue could do that. Has he ever communicated with a star by stars before? I bet Bethlehem. He could write with the calligraphy of the clouds. He could write the gospel in every language throughout the whole world. Has he ever communicated through clouds before? Yes, remember during the Exodus and during uh, the Transfiguration and so forth. He could frequently just lean over from heaven and go, hey, listen up down there. Speaking to you. Did he ever speak with an audible voice from heaven? Yes, on several occasions, remember? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. He could have done that, but he didn't. For reasons known only to himself, he's chosen none of, the, chosen none of those means as the primary means of proclaiming his word, his gospel throughout the world. Instead, he determined the world could not know him through its own wisdom, but he was well pleased by means of the message preached to declare his message in the world. And so preaching is always relevant, no matter what a majority of people thinks in any particular culture at any given time, preaching is God's idea. So it's always relevant. Now, let's define our terms a bit. What do we mean here by preaching? In some broad, general sense, all proclamation of the Word of God can be considered preaching. So any legitimate means of getting the conversation started with the gospel, getting the gospel out there, you send an email to somebody, you give a, a tract to someone. In one sense, any legitimate sense we get it out there, we could call that preaching. A personal conversation can be preaching, giving someone an evangelistic piece of literature is preaching. A Sunday school teacher talking about Jesus in class is preaching in one sense. Writing a letter where you put the gospel in there, that's preaching. But the word translated preached here implies more than just kind of general proclamation. There's another Greek word from which we get our word evangelism that, that refers to just, we might call it gospeling. Any way you get the gospel out there. By anybody, by any legitimate means. That's not the word used here, though. If Paul meant to describe this generic proclamation of God's word in all forms, he could have used that other word, but every major English translation here renders the word as preached. And so when the New Testament wants to refer to what we normally think of as pulpit preaching, this is the word that's being used here. But notice that it says... God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached. The grammatical emphasis is on the message. It's the message that saves people, not, not the act of preaching itself. God saves people through his message about Jesus, not through the physical actions of someone who's preaching. And yet no one is saved through that message unless it's delivered. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. But that gospel must be delivered. And in the New Testament, the primary delivery system for the gospel is preaching. With all the emphasis we rightly make on personal evangelism, in the New Testament, the primary delivery system for the, for the gospel of God is through preaching. So while we usually see the New Testament word preaching and, and, and rightly emphasize to, to children, 
you tell your friend about Jesus, you're a preacher in that sense. Uh, you know, we, to anybody, we say, you get the gospel out there, you're, you're preaching the gospel in one sense. But I think we've done a, such a good job of saying to anyone, you can get the gospel out there and proclaim the gospel that we almost make preaching irrelevant and unnecessary. I just want to remind you from this passage, preaching is God's idea, and so it is always relevant because God was pleased to ordain it. So when I'm talking about preaching, I'm talking about a man of God called and qualified by the local church, publicly teaching God's word with exhortation, with application. And this has always been God's plan. In the Old Testament, God ordained preaching. He could have dropped down some sort of visual images, golden tablets with special glasses to read them. He could have dropped down images of some sort, like paintings or something, by which he could have communicated to people via images. But instead, he spoke through the preaching of the prophets. In the New Testament, Jesus preached after his 30 years of hiddenness in preparation in Nazareth, and after 40 days of fasting and temptation in the wilderness, when he emerged, he began his ministry. And Matthew 4, 17 says, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus himself said, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, because for this purpose I was sent, and he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. And then Jesus sent his apostles to preach in Matthew 10, 7, Jesus commissioned the 12 and said, As you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Later on, after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, Peter would report about Jesus in Acts 10, 42, and he commanded us to preach to the people. Preaching was the method of the apostle Paul. After he was converted, you remember at first no one could believe it, but the word that kept circulating about him according to Galatians 1.23 was this, but they were hearing only, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And I find this especially fascinating when Paul described God's call and purpose for his life in 1 Timothy 2.7, he said it was for this, quote, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I was born first a preacher, then apostle. Look, there are only a handful of apostles. There are only a handful of apostles. That is a special office. But when he described the call of God in his life, Paul said, first of all, I'm a preacher. Second, he said, I'm an apostle. That's why he said right above, if you look up in verse 17 of the page you have your Bible open to, 117, for Christ did not send me to baptize, says Paul, but to preach the gospel. Now, before we get the wrong idea, remember, we get our doctrine of baptism from Paul. But Paul is saying, he didn't just send me to go around dunking people, just grab somebody, dunk them. Hey, you're going to heaven now. Hey, come over here. Huh? And you grab, what, what are you doing? Splash, now you're saved. No, he said, that's not what he sent me to do. He sent me to preach to people. And then we know what he thought about baptism elsewhere after that. But he said the main thing he sent me to do is not pr perform the ritual of baptism. That's not what saves people. It's preaching. God was well pleased to save people through the message preached. Now suppose for a moment you're the Apostle Paul. God sends you to one of the major cities of the world, Corinth. And your job is to establish the church. So put it in modern context, God sends you to Houston, and you know before you go there, there are no Christians there. There are no churches. And God's job for you is to plant the flag of the kingdom of God, to plant the church of Jesus Christ in Houston. How would you do that? You know you walk into the city. You know you're the only Christian there. What would you do? Well, Paul could have chosen to get the town's interest and reach them through Drama. How do we know that? Because the where was drama invented? In Greece. <laughs> That's where Corinth is. The theater that Paul 
would have walked right by. Almost certainly Paul would have been in. He was in Corinth a year and a half. Almost certainly the, he went into that theater. It's still there. It's still used for drama. It's an architectural marvel. You can stand on the very last row at the top. If you can hear someone whisper on the stage. So Paul could have taken advantage of that, used it to draw a crowd, communicate the gospel. He didn't do that. He could have thought, well, these Greeks know nothing of the scripture, so perhaps, you know, I, I should just have them act it out like this on the dramatic stage. They can better understand what I want to talk about. He didn't do that. He could have said, they like music. They come in here for concerts. I'll have a concert, draw a crowd, build on that. He might have used a similar approach with an Olympic athlete. The Olympic Games were held in Greece. Second in popularity to the Olympic Games were something called the Isthmian Games, and they were held in Corinth. So he might have built upon that somehow, used famous athletes to draw a crowd. He didn't do that. Basically, Acts 18, verse 4, and verse 11 says he just preached. Now, it's not that those other things might not have had their place, but we know of no use of them. Preaching was... And preaching is the only method explicitly appointed by God. So again, is anything wrong with a Christian concert? In principle, no. But we can't say here in the Bible it explicitly says we should have Christian concerts. The only method of communicating the gospel in the New Testament is preaching. There are promises attached to the preaching of the word of God that are not attached to any other method of communicating the gospel. Which is expounding on my basic idea, preaching is always relevant. And that's why we need to hear it. It's God's idea, God-ordained preaching. Now, yes, it's pretty easy to extrapolate principles from the New Testament why we might rightly have Christian drama we want, to, we want to capture all the arts for Christ. But should they be the primary means of communicating the gospel? No, there's no biblical justification for that. Christian musicians should use their talents and gifts for the glory of God, which means at times Christian concerts. But the primary means in the New Testament for the delivery of the gospel is explicitly the preaching of of the word of God. God was well pleased, our verse says, through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. His ordained method is always relevant because it's timeless. It's transcultural. It's simple. You don't have to have equipment. You don't have to have money. You don't need organizations. You don't need buildings. I've preached in enormous edifices. I've preached in the Superdome. And you just keep looking up and up and up. Of course, there's nobody up there when I was preaching. But I mean, it's just, you know, I've been in towns that could fit into that building. And then I have preached with the blessing of God in a tiny, half-finished building made of mud and sticks that wasn't as big as this platform in the bush country of Kenya. In the rainy season, they dig with their hands in the mud, make bricks out of that, stack it together. And I preached with a flashlight on my Bible in the darkness there with the preaching of God. You don't have to have buildings to preach. Same mission trip, preached under a tree to people. I have preached mostly in the familiar surroundings of my own culture, but with some fruitfulness in a variety of cultures with translators so I didn't have to even speak their own language. I've preached in, in showplace homes. I was telling the pastor about this yesterday when I pastored in the Chicago area. Uh, I preached in a home of a, of a uh, president, CEO of a corporation who's independently wealthy, spends most of his time big game hunting. Uh, his wife and daughter were Christians. His daughter had some friends from college come, and so they had me come and preach. This man had entire wings of his house built to hold the mounted animals he had shot. One was the mountain room in which he had a 
papier-mâché mountain built and brought in in three pieces on a flatbed semi-trailer, put there and then built this enormous room around it. And that room held all the things he'd shot on mountains, mountain lions, mountain goats. In the room in which I preached, an enormous room, I, I counted before I preached, I counted over 60 different mounted animals, big grizzly bear in the corner, you know, about eight feet tall or so like this. Fake branches coming down from the ceiling with, with leopards ready to pounce on these branches. Uh, pythons coiled around the lamp stands, you know, coming up. Monkeys hanging down, you know, or some type of ape hanging down from the ceiling. I thought it'd be very interesting you spent the night here and walked through to go to the bathroom, you know. <laughs> All these things. And I have preached in homes like that. I have preached in Brazil in a home half the size of this platform made of concrete blocks, dirt floor. And it was packed with people, so I had to stand outside the door to preach, and the sewer was the, basically the threshold. You had to step over that to get into the house. Preaching can occur where there's no electricity, there's no literature, there's no literacy. It can adapt to a high-tech society, a low-tech society, everything in between, and that all that's needed at any time, at any place, in any culture, in any circumstances, is a preacher and listeners. So regardless of how inefficient or ineffective something preaching is in our technological mass media, social media society, regardless of how much more exciting or entertaining or even apparently successful other methods may appear, the most effective way of communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ is still through the means God was well pleased to ordain. J.I. Packer says, God uses preaching to communicate more than current communication theory is concerned with. I have nothing against books, films, recordings, study groups in their place, but the place where God sets the preacher is not their place. And where else can you hear in person this delivery system for God's revelation more than in the church? It's always relevant. Second, we should listen to preaching in the church because God's message is the subject. The subject of preaching is God's message. Let me remind you of verse 21 again. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The content of true biblical preaching is the message of God. Paul explains on either side of this verse what he means by that. In verse 18, he says, for the word of the cross is, foolish, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it, the word of the cross, is the power of God. So that's what the message is, it's the word of the cross. Then right below our text in verses 22 and 23, for indeed Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews the stumbling block, to Gentiles foolishness. So what is the message that God has ordained that we preach? Verse 18, it's the word of the cross. Verse 23, it's Christ crucified. The centerpiece of the message preached that God uses to save people is Jesus and his cross. Now that is not to say that every sermon should only be about Jesus or his crucifixion, but it does mean that the life and work of Jesus, the person and work of Jesus Christ is the main message of the church. The main message we preach and all messages from the Word of God should relate either directly or indirectly to Him. And this is what Paul did. He could, he could address the most mundane issues of life. And the Bible does. And so should we because God has his, in His kingdom dominion over every area of life. And we need to explain how that is so and how to do that. So he can talk about such everyday issues as life in the home. Husbands, love your wives. How does Christ love the church? No matter what he talked about, no matter how mundane it was, he was never more than an arm's length away from Christ and him crucified. And that's important to remember because it's easy to preach the text and not preach Christ if he's not in the text. You Bible study leaders, it's easy to be faithful to the text 
but not proclaim Christ if he's not explicitly in the text. That's why Jesus taught us on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 to look at all the scriptures Christocentrically. To look at the scriptures Christocentrically. And that's what Paul means here, that the main message of the church is Jesus. The main message about Jesus is the cross. And somehow or another, everything should relate to that, even if it's not directly in the text. So if the subject of a sermon is not somehow related to the message of God, then regardless of how motivational it might be or informative or entertaining, it is not biblical preaching. And regardless of how passionate the presentation, it is still the content not the physical force of the delivery that determines if it is biblical preaching. Now, some of you who grew up in the South, as I did, know what that, that's like. Oops, wish I hadn't done that. But that serves my illustration, so I'm sure that's why God allowed that to happen. Where I grew up, uh, there are people who would preach with such passion and force that people would come and stand and, with a towel, cool them off, supposedly. You know, just like I just cooled myself off of that water. Where I grew up, there were people that would, you know, if they were, they could be talking about fried chicken. You know, with their coat sort of half off and walking on three inches of their pants leg and their shirt out of their pants and, you know, fried chicken. People say, that's preaching. It was the delivery, not the content. But according to this verse, it is the content that determines if it's biblical preaching. Not the force, not the delivery, not the physical movements of the preacher. No matter how effective his personal delivery is, what determines if it's biblical preaching is the content. Is it the message that's mentioned here in this passage? So... You want to avoid a church where the preaching is not clearly based on the Bible. Most of you, statistically, most of you, before you die, will be looking for another church home. You're going to move somewhere else. One out of every nine Americans moves every year. Some of you will graduate. You'll go to college. You'll perhaps never come back here to live. You will look for other churches in your lifetime. Others of you may retire somewhere else and be looking for a church. And so for just normal life reasons... Many of you here will be looking for another church someday. And although you know this is a good, solid church, you hear biblical preaching here, perhaps this never occurred to you. How do you determine that? Well, here's a simple way anybody can understand. You have to look down at your Bible every once in a while to follow along. I could give you a nuanced definition of expository preaching, a page long, and you wouldn't remember any of it. But just about anybody can remember this. Do you have to look down at your Bible every once in a while to follow along? If you do, well, there's a high likelihood you're getting biblical preaching. But biblical preaching is when the message is based on the text. The point of the sermon, Mark Dever says, is the point of the passage. What you want to avoid is topical preaching. Now, let's be fair. There are two kinds of topical preaching. There's biblical topical preaching, which is okay on occasion. You know, we take a Bible topic like, like heaven. What does the Bible say about heaven? And we look all over the Bible to present a biblical picture of heaven. There's a place for that. Even, I think, a place for an extended series. When I originally wrote Spiritual Listens for the Christian Life, I, I preached those. What does the Bible say in general about our practice of prayer? A chapter on worship. What does the Bible say about worship? What does the Bible say about fasting? That's still a biblical sermon, even though I took a biblical topic and then looked all over the Bible. But generally speaking, I think the best way to give God's word to his people is the way God gave it to us, and that is verse by verse. Now, I think you know the, the verse numbers and the chapter divisions didn't come around for 1,200 years after the Bible was written, but you get the point. God gave us the Bible, book by book, chapter by chapter, line by line, and I think that's the best way to give it to people. But the kind of church you want to be a part of is where the Bible is read at the beginning. You can be confident that what follows is built upon it. God made our hearts. And he made our hearts for the word of God. He knows what we need most. And nothing nourishes us like his word preached. And whether you recognize it or not, nothing else in worship can satisfy us 
more than what God says to us. One of my favorite preachers is a very old man. He's retired now for a long time, Eric Alexander, faithful Scottish expositor, man who pastored in Glasgow in the last half of the 20th century, told this story. He said, I had a young student telephone me one evening from an English city where he was at university. I've just traveled two and a half hours by bus to the opposite side of the city, he said. I have been here for eight weeks and have been around every church I've been told about which is remotely evangelical. I've heard some marvelous music. I have been under some remarkably scintillating talks about current issues. I have listened to dialogue. I have seen drama and dancing. I have been a witness to all kinds of excellent occasions of worship. But I'm sitting back in this university residence this evening asking, will nobody in this city feed my soul? You have a pastor who will feed your soul with the only thing that can satisfy your soul, the word of God. You should be grateful for that, and when the day comes, you must look for another church. You want to find, again, a church where there is a commitment to feeding the souls of God's people with God's word. Sheep love sheep food. Goats don't. Goats don't like sheep food. They'll be satisfied with other things. They'll want other things, but sheep can't be satisfied with anything but sheep food. Your soul will only be fed from the word of God. I didn't actually get to the other kind of topical preaching, and that's where the pastor or preacher chooses a topic and then says whatever they want to say. Uh, in, in social media in the past couple of weeks, and Dr. Moeller on his great podcast, The Briefing, talked about this. Uh, uh, recently, a, a, a self-identifying, very leftward church uh, represents supposedly this movement in leftward-leaning churches where the, they rally more around causes than around doctrine, than around truth. And supposedly this is kind of the current trend that's going to rescue dying denominations. And uh, in the church used as the model of this, you go to their website, there's about 50 or 60 people uh, sparsely scattered throughout this big room, and most of those look like it could be their last Sunday on earth. But nevertheless, the sermon that Sunday was actually delivered by an atheist Again, show, showing how these, they, they rally around causes, not truth. And the message was the dangers of genetically modified vegetables. The dangers of genetically modified vegetables. Now, regardless of how you feel about that issue, I'm not sure that would get me out of bed in the morning and get me to church. And I know it would not feed my soul. That's topical preaching, where the preacher chooses the topic, says whatever they want to say. That won't feed your soul. Your soul will be fed only from the Word of God. And without it, you will be undernourished. And that's what happened to a man I'll call Chris, with whom I spoke. I was ordering some literature from a ministry that you, you would know and when I gave him the address of where to send the literature, he said, oh, I know exactly where that is. And he said that uh, prior to working for this parachurch ministry, um, he had for several years been associate pastor in charge of drama and music at a fairly large and growing church just a few miles from, from our church. And the ministry there was based on topical preaching aimed at people's felt needs. And the church had grown from very few to hundreds in a short time. And Chris said something I don't think I've ever heard anyone in ministry say. He said, I had plenty of budget money and many talented actors, singers, musicians, and other workers to resource his ministers. Here's someone in ministry saying, I didn't need any more budget money. I didn't need any more people <laughs> to, to staff this ministry. But then afterwards, he said this to me. I didn't know it when I resigned. He went on to seminary. But the following Sunday, I realized that my soul was as dry and withered and empty as it could be. I've been running on the spiritual fumes of the pressure of preparation for each Sunday's drama and music. I was so busy, I hadn't realized that I'd dried up spiritually. It was because I was not hearing faithful biblical exposition, but topical sermons aimed at felt needs. 
Everything was based upon marketing strategy, and only when I got away from all that did I realize I was all but dead spiritually. Your soul was made by God, and he made it for the Word of God, and nothing will nourish your soul like the Word of God. Now let me turn third, why you should listen to preaching in the church, is because God saves people through his message preached. It's God's idea. We should listen to it because it's God's message when it's faithful to the Bible. And this is how God saves people. The most powerful, miraculous of God's works in the world occur through the preaching of his message. Look again at verse 121. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. God saves people through the message preached. And notice it doesn't say during the message preached. That's my own testimony. For this to be true doesn't mean he saves people always during the message preached. My own testimony is this. I was taken to church, like some of you, I'm sure, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, nine months before I was born. And I'd heard the gospel several times a week, but there was a series of meetings when I was nine years old. And on a Thursday night, the man is preaching from the Bible, and he preached that God made everything, including me. And because he made all things, he had all rights over all things, including me, and including the right to tell me how to live because he made me, and he had told me how to live in his word, but I had repeatedly, willingly, countless times broken his word, and therefore I was under the judgment of this holy God, and there is a judgment, there is a heaven, there is a hell, and I'm accountable to this God, and I was in trouble at the judgment, but God is also a God of love and mercy, and in them he sent his son Jesus, who lived the life I should have lived, but I could not live. He lived a perfect life. He always kept God's law. He never broke God's law. And by his life, Jesus earned heaven. And that qualified him to be a substitute for lawbreakers like me. And he willingly offered himself on the cross as a substitute, and God accepted that substitute, pouring out his wrath on Jesus. And my responsibility was to repent and believe. Jesus, accept, God accepted this substitution, we know, because God raised him from the dead, exalted him to heaven at the right hand of God, and is sending him someday to return to be judge and king over all. And what I need to do in response to that is to repent, to turn from my sin, turn from living for myself, and turn in faith to Jesus, believing that only what he did can qualify me for heaven. That when I believe into Christ, I am given credit for his righteousness, and on the cross, he got credit for my life, which earned the wrath of God. Well, we went home that night. My mother was tucking me into bed. She saw that I was troubled, and so she brought my dad in, who explained the gospel to me again, and there is a nine-year-old boy in my bedroom. I repented and believed in Jesus, and God saved me. So you see the point? I was saved through the preaching, but not during the preaching. And if it were to be known, it's often hard for people to trace it. But I believe far more often the people realize they were saved through the preaching of his word. Though they don't remember the sermon, they don't remember. They would say, I grew up in church. I heard biblical preaching at Lakeside Bible Church. But they go off to college. And then maybe they grow up, they, they go into adulthood. And it's years later before they are converted. And they can't trace it back to any particular sermon or the preaching at all. But far more than they realize is the cumulative effect of the word preached that led to their salvation. Only eternity will reveal people's salvation came through the word preached, even when it wasn't during the word preached. And since preaching is one of the chief ways God saves people, keep your distance from a church that minimizes it or substitutes other things for it. Whenever a church allows anything like drama or music or ceremony or concerts or, or pageants or dance or anything to compromise the promise of the message preached, you know what that shows? They've lost confidence in the word of God. And it usually happens first with the preacher who allows this to begin to encroach on his sermon time. And I understand that. 
It is difficult to preach week after week when you've spent 10, 15, 20 hours to prepare a message. And when you finish, all you hear is crickets. You can't see any immediate evidence that God did anything. And when people go out the door saying, well, I enjoyed that, Pastor. Well, I preached on hell. What do you mean? How can you enjoy a sermon on hell? <laughs> or they say something, you know, thank you, Pastor. Your every sermon's better than the next one. Thank you. Think about that. And are you preach your heart out and someone comes up, you know, how about them Astros? And that happens week after week after week, and preachers are tempted. Maybe something, there's better ways. Maybe there's a more effective things. Think of something else. Try something else. Preaching isn't working. That's why you need to pray for your preacher. He's constantly assaulted with temptations to find other ways to reach people. But throughout church history, the greatest movements of God in saving people, as verse 21 talks about, have been built upon great God-anointed preaching. We speak of the great reformation of the church that happened in the days of the 1500s with Luther and Calvin. But did you realize the Reformation was, was also a great revival? Luther and Calvin preached every day. People were saved and brought in to saving faith with Christ by incredible numbers. It wasn't just things were changed and reformed more and according to the scripture, it was a great revival. And then during the Puritan period, this too was a great moving of God's spirit of revival. And we speak of the first great awakening in America when you know, the, the spirit of God came in great waves, two great waves upon uh, the United States during the time, or the colonies at that time, during the days of, of Edwards and, and George Whitfield and Gilbert Tennant. And then followed 75 years later with the second great awakening. The greatest movements of God in the history of the world in saving people have come through the blessing of God upon preaching. And I love what Ian Murray says about it. And a revival is just God putting his foot on the accelerator. It's, it's the extraordinary blessing of God upon the ordinary means of ministry. God just sends extraordinary blessing on the things you ought to be doing all the time. You don't do something special. It's what we ought to be doing all the time. God just sends the extraordinary blessing upon it. When the fire of God falls, the flashpoint is the pulpit. The greatest movements of God in history in saving people have come through preaching. One of the most single influential sermons in my life uh, uh, on a number of points came from a man named David Clarkson, who was the associate to then the successor of the great theologian John Owen. And he said this, the most wonderful things now done on earth. That's quite a statement right there, right? What are the most wonderful things done on earth? Are wrought in the public ordinances. In other words, public worship where preaching happens. Though the commonness and spiritualness of them makes them seem less wonderful. In other words, because God does these great things so commonly and because they happen spiritually, we don't see limbs restored to people and so forth in great numbers. They seem less wonderful than they really are. <clears throat> Here, he says, the Lord speaks life into dry bones and raises dead souls out of the grave and sepulcher of sin. Here the dead hear the voice of the Son of God and his messengers, and those that hear do live. Here he gives sight to those who are born blind. It is the effect of the gospel preached to open the eyes of sinners and turn them from darkness to light. Here he cures diseased souls with a word which are otherwise incurable by the utmost help of men and angels. Here he dispossesses Satan, casts unclean spirits out of the souls of sinners that have long been possessed by them. Here he overthrows principalities and powers, vanquishes the power of darkness, and causes Satan to fall from heaven like lightning. Here he turns the whole course of nature in the souls of sinners, makes all things pass away, and all things become new. Wonders these are, and would be so accounted were they not the common work of the public ministry. It is true indeed, the Lord has not confined himself to work these things only in public ministry. 
yet the public ministry is the only ordinary means whereby he works them. Yes, you can hear preaching outside of the church, and the Lord has not confined himself to do these great things only in church, but we should hear preaching in the church because the Lord does these things week after week after week. It is the only place you can regularly hear and see these kinds of things done. That's why it ought to be a priority. Well, let me wrap this up with some practical exhortations here. We'll be done. First, realize that reverently and responsively listening to God's word preached is one of the highest forms of honoring and worshiping God. We think of preaching, I mean, worship is something we do. I sing, I give, I pray, but I listen is also an act of worshiping God. And you are great listeners as a church. You wrote the book on it. <laughs> but do you realize what you're doing is worshiping God? You're not just being, you know, galvanized to live more Christianly. You're worshiping when you listen to God's word preached with an eager mind and responsive heart. It's, it's, it's worship. And yes, it's true. You can hear much preaching on podcasts and on radio and TV apart from the church, but those things I encourage you to do, but as supplements to, they are not a substitute for the preaching of the word of God in person. During the Gulf War, the Persian Gulf War, first one in 1991, I saw a news story which showed clips of a wedding of a soldier who was stationed in Saudi Arabia to his bride from Michigan. They were both in Michigan. They had set their wedding date. Before the wedding came, he was deployed to the Gulf. But it was so close to the time, they determined to keep their wedding, to keep their wedding date. And so the day came where they had big screen television on the front of the church, big screen television in the place where they were in Saudi Arabia, in the Gulf. Had a chaplain there. Pastor was there at the church in Michigan. All the people had come for the wedding. Father escorted the bride down the aisle. She's standing there by herself <laughs> next to the television, the big screen TV, where she can see full size her beloved in Saudi Arabia. They had FedExed their rings to each other. The wedding was official in real time. They were officially married. But folks, it ain't the same. <laughs> I could be just outside one of those doors on camera, and it could be broadcast up here in real time. And like the Wizard of Oz, you know, my face would be bigger than even, you know, horror of horrors than you can see me now. You can see me more clearly is the point, in real time, but it ain't the same. There's something about the immediacy, the physical presence. I mean, if Jesus were going to appear somewhere on this planet today and you knew it, would you rather be there in person or watch it on TV? Some things, including preaching, are simply meant to be experienced in person. Second, make preaching a primary consideration when choosing a church. As I said, many of you will choose another church for good reasons sometime in the future. And I can't tell you how many times as a pastor people would come and say, you know, well, we're looking for a good nursery. We want a strong children's program. Uh, the quality of the music ministry is our top uh, criterion. Uh, more often than anything else I heard, they said, we want a great youth ministry. But I almost never heard, we want to make sure that our souls are fed from the word of God. Folks, you can have the greatest youth ministry in the world. You can have everything else is great. But when they get out of the youth ministry, they're going to leave because compared to what they got there, the preaching is dull. But when the pulpit is the strength of the church, it strengthens everything else in the church. It makes everything else strong. And it is not programs or activities as good and desirable they are that change lives. It's the word of God. So you want to make sure they consistently hear what will save them and build them up. Third, I encourage you to pray for your preacher. Pray for preaching. You're going to get generally what you pray for. Undoubtedly, the best known preacher Christian history is Charles Spurgeon. We've quoted from him even this morning. Died in London, 1892. Best known name in Christendom in his day. 
His sermons still sell more than anybody's today. I could tell you all these statistics of the people who heard him, largest evangelical church in the world in his day, but when asked the secret, he said, my people pray for me. My people pray for me. Do you want better preaching? Pray for it. Pray for Pastor Ken. A prayerless church will likely get the kind of preaching it prays for or doesn't pray for. You realize you're praying for yourself? You're praying for your family when you pray for your preacher? In contrast to Spurgeon's story is one I read about another well-known 19th century preacher, American in this case, T. DeWitt Talmadge of Brooklyn. One Sunday evening, he was the preacher in a church not far from the one he pastored in Brooklyn. In his own pulpit that morning, the Lord seemed to come in great power upon his sermon. But as he preached the same sermon that night nearby in another church, the word just seemed to die, you know, as they came over the pulpit and just fell into a puddle below the pulpit. One of his church leaders had walked with him to this other venue that night. And as they were coming back, he said, I don't get it. You got the same man preaching the same message on the same day. This morning, God came in great power. Tonight, it was flat as it could be. How do you answer that? How do you explain that? And he said, poor preaching is God's curse on a prayerless church. Poor preaching is God's curse on a prayerless church. You tend to get the kind of preaching you pray for. Don't let it be that you do not have because you do not ask. Even the apostle Paul frequently requested prayer for his preaching. Over and over, he kept saying, pray for me. Now, wouldn't you think if anyone could give out without prayer in his preaching, it's the guy who has been to heaven, <laughs> had visions, had Jesus appear to him, had miracles come coursing through his very hands over and over. But he pleaded with the people again and again and again, pray for me, pray for me. That's why you need to pray for Ken. I mean, we, we would both encourage you during the week, I mean, listen to Bible preaching by every means you can, podcast, radio. But those are professionally prepared and edited out all the uhs, all the misstatements, so that what you and I hear on a podcast on radio is mistakeless preaching. <laughs> Everything's edited, so it just sounds like they never made one mistake, one hesitation. And you listen to that, and you hear it five days a week on a podcast, on the radio, and it's, it's just almost perfect. And then you come here on Sunday morning, and it's Ken. And like me, maybe he spills water on himself and he's going, you know, is it hot in here? Do we need to turn the air conditioner on? Or, you know, the microphone doesn't work for a while maybe or, or, or something happens. And you see the contrast? There's no way he can compete. No way he can compete with those in the media who are presented to us in, in perfect form. He's, he's real. And like I said, someone's just caught him at the door, you know, coming in. And did you know there's no toilet paper in the women's restroom? No, I haven't been in there in a while. I'm sorry. <laughs> he needs your prayers to feed your soul. Pray for him. And fourth and finally, realize that one measurement of your spiritual health is your hunger to hear God's word preached. Are you a mature Christian? Or are you spiritually healthy? Well, one of the measurements of that is your appetite to hear God's word preached. When your kids don't want to eat, what's your first thought? Something's wrong, right? They're sick. Something's the matter with them. Same is true in a church. When we read of people, as I read earlier, quote, staging drama productions in place of sermons, the desire for that is an indication that something is wrong if they don't want to hear God's word preached. In 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4, there's a sober recognition that there will be a time there will be those who want to replace sound doctrinal preaching with teaching that's more entertaining. You've heard this before. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. So what do they want? 
But according to their own desires, they have itching ears. They will quit coming to church. No, that's not what it says. It says they will heap up teachers, <laughs> podcasts, online, television, radio. They will heap up teachers for themselves and will turn away their ears from the truth and be turned aside to fables, stories. Now, if such serious words of, are, are, are spoken of those who want less doctrine and more entertainment and sermons, how much more grim is the condition who, of those who don't want any preaching? How's your appetite to listen to the preaching of God's Word? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for those in our own lives who have faithfully preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray for this preacher, the pastor of this church. Keep him faithful. Lord, we, we, we know of high-profile preachers who preach the word, who've recently abandoned the faith even. As Paul himself was aware of that, I'm sure, and, and pled with people, pray for me, pray for me. I can't do this in my own strength. can't do this in my own experience. For indeed, there's no education. There's no eloquence. There's no experience that can substitute for what God alone can supply and often supplies only through the prayers of people. So we pray for the preaching in this pulpit. We pray for ourselves. And we pray this moment for those who perhaps have heard preaching all their lives, but today have realized that they're strangers to the message preached. And the message of Christ crucified is the message their soul is drawn to as never before. Give them the grace to run to Christ. Lord, all this, I pray, pray for much lasting fruit from these three days. I pray for the fruit the Spirit alone can produce to come from this conference, from this message this morning. I ask it in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.